Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Good morning, everyone. Please open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. So that's the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and chapter 4 is where we're going to be studying this morning. We're currently in a series for the season of Advent called One of Us, One of Us. And in this series, as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate Christmas and what we call the Incarnation, which is that event in which God became one of us, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ in order to reveal himself to us, in order to relate to us, in order to redeem us, right? What we remember at Christmas is that God was born into this world as a child so that through Jesus, we could become children of God. And so this week, as we continue this Advent, season, we're looking at another aspect of who Jesus is and what God did for us by becoming one of us. So please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we give you this time. We give you our hearts, our attention, our minds, and our ears. Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear, give us minds to comprehend and understand the meaning of these texts. But Lord, also, would you stir in our hearts and transform us that we might be moved to respond to these texts in all the way that you desire us to. Lord, thank you for being a good, gracious God who speaks to us. So Lord, now we give you our time and attention and ask that you'd speak to us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been said that you should never judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And that's really good advice because that way, when you judge that person, you'll be a mile away from them and you'll have their shoes. Right? Now listen, it is true though, right? It is difficult to fully understand or relate to what another person feels or what they've been through unless you've experienced it yourself. That's why we tend to build bonds with other people based on having gone through similar difficulties as they have. It's why cancer survivors relate so well to other cancer survivors. It's why military veterans relate so well to other military veterans because those people who've been through the same things that you've been through, they get you. They understand you in a way that other people can't. You know, Marlon Brando, he was called the grandfather of method acting. The grandfather of method acting. See, method acting is this technique that some actors employ to help them better understand or relate to the characters that they're trying to portray. And sometimes actors have been known to go to like really radical extremes in method acting, like to relate to the characters they're trying to portray. So for example, when he was preparing for the movie The Men, Marlon Brando was playing a lieutenant who was injured in World War II. So he actually checked himself into a hospital and wouldn't get out of bed for an entire month just so he could feel what it feels like, right? The frustration of being hospitalized and stuck in a bed for a month. Uh, The idea is that with method acting, right, when the cameras are rolling, the actor will then begin to be able to draw on actual emotions and real experiences that they themselves have had, and it'll help them to relate to the person they're trying to be in the movie. So like Robert De Niro, when he was preparing for Taxi Driver, he actually went out and got a job 
job for a couple months as a taxi driver at night. So he was driving taxis. Jamie Foxx, when he was portraying Ray Charles, the blind musician, he actually glued his eyes shut for days, right? So that he could know what it felt like to be blind. Nicolas Cage, uh, for the movie Birdie, he actually pulled out four of his own teeth without anesthesia. And I actually, I, don't, I haven't seen the movie, but I can't imagine how that has anything to do with the movie. He was just like, just like kind of a strange character, strange dude, I guess. But listen, the goal of method acting is to completely lose yourself in this character and become that person as much as you can. So like Marlon Brando, for example, when he was preparing for a role or during filming, he would never break character. Everyone around him, like even offset at home, wherever he went, uh, they would not he wouldn't respond to Marlon. He would only respond to the name of the character he was playing, and he would respond as, th as that character. And he would do this for months. He would never break character. And the, again, the idea is that in this way, the actor doesn't really act. They just become the person they're portraying. They live as that person. They react the way that person would react. And yet... Despite these extreme things that people do in order to relate to the people that they're portraying as actors, at the end of the day, they're still just actors, right? They're still pretending. They're still faking it, if you will. It's a controlled environment, and they know that it's temporary. And at some point, it will end, and they'll get to go back to their real life. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because at Christmas, what we celebrate is that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God became one of us. And as one of us, he can actually relate to us. He gets us in the sense that as a human person during his time here on earth, he experienced many of the same things that you and I experience in our lives as well. Think about it. Because he became one of us. Jesus knows what it's like to be a teenager. He, he knows what it's like to be cold or to feel physical pain. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one, someone close to him. He knows what it's like to navigate drama and relationships and to be betrayed by a friend. And yet someone might still say, okay, well, maybe Jesus did experience some of the things that I've experienced in my life. Maybe he knows what some of those things feel like. But wasn't it kind of just like method acting? I mean, God became one of us for a short time in a controlled environment, and then he went back to comfort and glory in heaven. How much can he really relate to me? And, and also, why does it even matter that God can or cannot relate to me. If I want someone to relate to me, I can go find someone who's had a similar experience. Why do I need God to relate to me? For example, I mean, Jesus was never married. He never had kids. He never had to pay a mortgage. So how much can he relate to the things that I'm going through? And also, why is it even important that he relate to the things that I'm going through? How does that help us? What did Jesus accomplish by becoming one of us and sharing in our human experiences? Did he just become one of us so that he could walk a mile in our shoes and now he can judge us from a mile away and say, well, why is it so hard for you? I did it. I was fine. Or did Jesus become one of us in order to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves? Well, in our study today, what we're going to see, we're going to see what Jesus did by becoming one of us and sharing in our human experiences and why the message of Christmas, that God became one of us in the person of Jesus, why it's such good news. So the title of today's message is Jesus, 
our compassionate high priest. Jesus, our compassionate high priest. And here's what we're going to see in our message today. We're going to see that in Jesus, God became one of us in order to relate to us and to save us by becoming our great high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. That's a long sentence, but it's our summary sentence for today, which summarizes what this text is all about, what it has to say to us. And it's also going to be our outline for studying the passage today. So I'll read it to you one more time, then we'll break it into two parts and use it as our guide for studying this passage. So in Jesus, God became one of us in order to relate to us and save us by becoming our great high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. So let's look at the first part of that. In Jesus, God became one of us in order to relate to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The book of Hebrews is a letter which was written to Christians from a Jewish background. Specifically, though, it was written to Christians from a Jewish background who were considering giving up on Christianity and going back to Judaism because of persecution that they were facing as a result of their faith in Jesus. And so this letter is essentially a a passionate plea and a compelling case which talks about who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished, and why that means that there is no salvation apart from him. In other words, to give up on Jesus would be a huge mistake, the worst thing these people could possibly do, even if following him means enduring persecution. But here's what's interesting about this section in particular, as it's telling us things about Jesus in this book. This section tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. In the Gospel of Luke, the Christmas story begins by talking about a priest. Did you know that? The Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke begins by talking about a priest named Zechariah. It tells us that Zechariah was a man who loved God. He lived a righteous life. He was a good man. And yet, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, even though they had always wanted to have kids, they had never been able to have a child. And it says that one day, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the priests in Israel, they served a very important function. Their role, their function was they were mediators between the people and God. So mediators between God and the people. They were the ones who would present the sacrifices in the temple according to the law of Moses. Now, according to the law of Moses, there were five different sacrifices which the people could make in order to maintain their relationship with God and in order to express their devotion to God. You can read about these sacrifices in the book of Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Now, some of these sacrifices were mandatory. Others of them were optional. But all of the sacrifices had to be administered by a priest. You couldn't go yourself and just offer a sacrifice on your own. You had to be mediated by a priest. It had to be administered by the priest. So in addition to the five regular sacrifices that are told us there in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, which, by the way, all those five were made for individuals, there was also a sixth kind of sacrifice, which was made once a year for the entire nation corporately. 
And that sacrifice, the sacrifice of atonement, could only be made by one priest in particular, the high priest. We'll get back to him in just a second. So the role of the priest was this. They functioned as mediators between God and the people, and they did that by offering sacrifices to connect people with God or to reconnect them with God. So being a priest, also, it was not an occupation that you could choose for yourself. You couldn't say, well, I think I'll study and become a priest. No, it was something that you had to be born into, right? You couldn't choose it. It chose you. Now, what that meant also is that as the population of Israel increased, the number of priests in Israel would also increase. So we know that by the time of Jesus, according to historical sources, there were about 20,000 priests serving in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, these priests served in divisions. They were organized, and those divisions would be on a rotation as to which division served at what time at the temple. Now, at the temple, there was a lot of work to be done. And it was hard work, and it was generally dirty work. The work of the priests usually meant, think about it, cleaning up blood and hair, things like this, soot, which was created by all the sacrifices of animals from burning things on the altar. Most of the work of the priests would be done, by the way, at the temple, not in the temple. You understand that the temple itself, right? Most of what took place at the temple actually took place in the courtyard immediately surrounding the temple. That's where the altar was. That's where the sacrifices would be burned and where they would be slaughtered. It was in the courtyard of the building itself, not, the, not inside the actual building. The temple itself was really a relatively small building. It was much smaller than this room, for example. It was a tall building, but inside it was very small. And that's because by design, it was not a place of gathering for the people, right? It wasn't a place where people would congregate in large numbers. That took place outside. No, no, it wasn't like how we gather inside a room for church. The sacrifices the people would make at the temple some of them were to atone for sins or to remove their guilt for something wrong they had done. Those sin offerings and guilt offerings, they would involve an innocent animal being slaughtered and its body burned on the altar. It was a gruesome thing, really. I mean, you can think about the sights, the sounds, the smells involved in all of this, but also understand it was designed purposefully to be a gruesome thing. It was designed to to be visceral, right? To communicate something that you would see and sense and smell viscerally that was powerful. And what it was designed to communicate is, look, this is what sin does. This is what happens as a result of sin. This is how serious wrong actions are. The wages of sin is death. Sin causes death. That was the point of all of it. So if you sinned in some way by breaking God's commandments or perhaps by hurting another person, then you would need to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and you would have to make a sacrifice for your sins in order for your sin to be atoned for and for your guilt to be removed. So just imagine if you lived a few days journey away from Jerusalem, or if you lived a few weeks journey from Jerusalem, you better try really hard not to do anything wrong 
long, right? Because you're going to have to travel a really long way in order to get right with God. Not to mention, it was extremely expensive, right? All that travel, all that time off work, not to mention to buy the animals to sacrifice was very expensive. You couldn't just sacrifice any old animal. You had to sacrifice an animal which had been tested and proved to prove that it was without blemish, top tier, right? Top shelf animals, the most expensive kind. So what you would do is you would bring this animal to the priest after you had purchased it there in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount, and you would place your hand on the animal's head to symbolize your sin, your guilt being transferred to that animal as your substitute, as your stand-in. And then as your hand was on the head of that animal, the priest would take a knife and cut the animal's throat. That animal's blood, you can imagine, it would get all over your clothes. For the rest of the day, you would have blood on your clothes and you would feel the life drain out of that animal. All of this was designed to communicate that sin has a cost. Even the smallest sins have a steep cost. Whatever happened to that animal, it happened because of what you did. And the simple fact was this. You might be able to offer some sacrifice to atone for some of your sins. But you would never practically be able to make enough sacrifices to ever atone for all of your sins. Not to mention, there just wasn't enough time in the day or enough, you know, altars to go around for people, for all the sins of all the people of all the world to ever be atoned for in this way. So it says in Luke chapter 2, that Zechariah, this priest, he was chosen to enter the temple and burn the incense in the temple. Now, listen, that was a really big deal. You need to understand that. This meant that he would get to enter into the temple itself. Listen, many, mo most Jewish people in their entire life would never enter into the temple because only priests were allowed to enter into the temple. And even the priests, they couldn't just enter whenever they wanted to. They could only enter when they were called on to, do, to be on duty in the temple, and that was by the casting of lots. And remember, there were 20,000 priests in Israel at this time. You could only enter when you were performing service that you were chosen at random to perform, and even if you did, you would only get to spend three to four minutes in there max. So 20,000 priests in all of Israel. Most priests in their entire life would never get the chance to enter into the temple. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. Now inside the temple, if you went in as he got to, there would be two rooms. The first room you would enter into would be called the Holy Place. In the holy place, there were a few elements. There was, first of all, a golden lampstand called the menorah. Secondly, there was a table which had bread on it called the showbread, 12 loaves of bread representing one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it would be changed out every day. Then there was an altar on which they burned incense. Now, beyond the holy place, there was a curtain that was another room that, that was separated by a thick curtain. That was called the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies. And that room contained the Ark of the Covenant, that big golden box that had two angels on its lid. 
And inside the Ark of the Covenant were kept the two stone tablets on which Moses had received the Ten Commandments. And there were also a few other uh, objects inside there that were from Israel's wandering in the wilderness. But the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat. And the mercy seat, what it represented to the people of Israel, they considered it to be the throne of God on earth. And only one person was ever allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And that was the high priest on only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, the day when the sacrifice of atonement would be made to atone for the sins of the nation corporately. So every morning, here's what would happen at the temple. Three priests would be chosen by lot to perform the daily duties. The first priest would go in, he would clean the temple from the, the events of the previous day, and he would prepare the lampstand and prepare the table of showbread. The second priest who would go in, he would make the morning sacrifice on the altar in the courtyard. Then he would take the blood of the sacrifice into the sanctuary, and he would sanctify the holy place by sprinkling or spraying the blood of the sacrifice onto the lampstand and the table and the altar of incense. And then the third priest, he had the most privileged duty. The third priest would go in and he would light the incense on the altar, which represented the prayers of the people continually ascending to God in a pleasing aroma. So for Zechariah, understand this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You can imagine him wondering, maybe asking some other people who had been in there before, what's it going to be like? Maybe expecting to have a special spiritual encounter with God there in that sacred space. And so it tells us that when the time came for Zechariah to go into the temple, here's what happened. He enters in, into this place where he's the only one in the room, all alone, and there he is, preparing the incense on the incense altar, and something incredible happens. An angel of the Lord appears to him, standing next to him, standing next to the altar of incense. And this angel tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, despite the fact that she's advanced in years, she is going to have a son, and they are to name him John. And it says that this son will be great before the Lord. He will be the one who will turn the hearts of the people, the children of Israel, back to the Lord their God and prepare the way of of the Lord. Now, the reason why what this angel told Zechariah was so important, and Zechariah would have known right away what the angel was saying. You see, the reason is because the last time that God had spoken to Israel through a prophet was through the prophet Malachi. If you look in your Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of the prophet Malachi. And so God's last word to the people of Israel before he had stopped speaking for 400 years up until the point of Zechariah, God's last word to the people was, I'm going to send the Messiah, but before I do, I'm going to send somebody else. And that other person, he will be the forerunner, the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah by preparing the hearts of the people, turning them back to the Lord their God and preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And what Malachi had said, he said, you know what this person will be like? He will come in the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah, and he will prepare the hearts of the people by turning them back to the Lord. So what this angel was telling Zechariah there in the temple that day is that he was going to have a son and that this time of waiting had now come to an end, this time of waiting for the Messiah, that his son was going to come, his son would be the forerunner, and the Messiah was about to be born. 
You know, the word Messiah, it means anointed one, the anointed one. In ancient Israel, there were three kinds of people who, according to the law, were anointed with oil to prepare them for their service, their special service to God and the people. Those kinds of people were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. When they began their ministry or their service to God and to the people, they would have oil poured over their heads, anointing them with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon them to empower them to carry out their ministries and the callings they had received from the Lord in those different roles. Now, each of these three anointed people, they each personified one aspect of who the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, would one day be. The Messiah, when he came, he would be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king in one person. And that brings us back to Hebrews chapter 4, which tells us that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, which we looked at last week, we looked at it, how it tells us who Jesus is. And that, in fact, Jesus is God come to us. The same God who created the world, the same God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, this same God came to us in the person of Jesus in order to do what? In order to, it says, make purification for sins. Making purification for sin, that was the job of a priest. The priest's job was to make purification for sin. A priest was someone who mediated between you and God in order to reconnect you with God when you had broken your relationship, broken fellowship with God because of sinning in some way. And the way that they purified things, do you remember how the temple was purified? It was purified with blood, which is interesting, right? Because we tend to think that blood makes a mess, right? Spraying blood everywhere. It sounds like a huge mess. But they said, no, no, that's the way that things are cleansed spiritually. And so what they would do, remember every day, they would take the blood of the sacrifice and they would cleanse the temple by sprinkling the blood on the lampstand, on the altar of incense, on the table of showbread. And then on Yom Kippur, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for atonement onto the mercy seat the throne of God on earth in the holy of holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. So here's what this means. The message of Christmas is that God came to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves by becoming our great high priest to purify us from our sins. Notice that Jesus is called the great high priest. That means that he is greater than any other priest, any other high priest who has ever lived. It means that every other priest and high priest was merely a foreshadowing, a preview of coming attractions of who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish. Look at what it says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What this tells us is that in order for Jesus to be the high priest that we needed, so that he could cleanse us from our sins once and for all, it was necessary that he, as God, become one of us in every respect, is what it says there in that verse. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God became one of us in every respect so that he could save us. 
Going back to Hebrews chapter 4, it says this in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The word sympathize, it means to feel what another person feels. To feel what another person feels. Jesus knows what it feels like to be tempted because in his life, he was also tempted in every way that we are, and yet he lived without sin. Now, we read about a time in Jesus' life, for example, when after his baptism, he was taken up into the wilderness, and there he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. But what this verse is telling us is that that wasn't the only time when Jesus endured temptation in his life. Rather, just like all of us, temptation was a regular aspect of Jesus' experience as a human being. And yet, he overcame that temptation and lived a life that was pleasing to God. Now, that's important for two reasons. It's important, number one, because it shows us that it is possible to overcome the temptations that we face in this life. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that no temptation has overtaken us except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. Listen, what that means is that you and I, we are not just hapless victims of our circumstances. It means that we can live lives of freedom and victory and joy as we walk with Jesus and rely on his power and do what he's called us to do by the strength that he provides. But you know what else it tells us? The other reason it matters that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin is because it means that Jesus is qualified to be the savior we need. And that brings us to the second and last part of our sentence. You see, Jesus became one of us in order to relate to us, but also to save us by becoming one of us, by becoming our great high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Th think about it. If there already were priests, right? There were priests like Zechariah who offered sacrifice for the sins of the people. Then why was there a need for Jesus to come and be our great high priest? The reason is because the priests themselves were imperfect people and the sacrifices they offered were imperfect sacrifices. That's why they had to be repeated over and over and over. But even then, they were never enough to cover all the sins of all the people. You see, what we needed was a perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice to cover over all sins for all time. The fact that Jesus was tempted in all ways and yet without sin, it's important because that word tempted also means tested. It's the same word, tempted and tested. In other words, Jesus was put to the test. He was examined and he passed the test. It says in the book of Romans chapter 8, particularly in verse 4, it says that Jesus in his life here on earth, he fulfilled all all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Whereas we have sinned and fallen short of what God requires of us, Jesus in his life fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements. What we were unable to do in our weakness, God has done for us in his strength by becoming one of us and living the life that we should have lived. And then, having fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, God offers us what can be called the great exchange. He gives you his perfect righteousness. In exchange, he takes all of your sins and the judgment for those sins. 
doesn't seem like a very fair deal if you ask me, right? We are getting all the benefit in that exchange. He's taking our judgment in our place. Just like how when the animals were sacrificed in the temple, the sins of the people were transferred to the animal and it became the substitute for that person. All of that was done to foreshadow what Jesus would do for us on the cross as our sins were transferred to him and he was slain in our place. Friends, this is what Christmas is all about, that God became one of us in order to do for us what we could not do for ourselves by becoming our great high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why it says in 1 John chapter 2 that if anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is why the Christmas story begins in the temple with a priest named Zechariah. But you know, Zechariah, like all the other priests out there, he was a flawed person. So when the angel told him that he was going to have a son who would be the promised forerunner to the Messiah, Zechariah responded by questioning and saying, I don't know, I don't think that's really possible. And because of his improper response, his voice was taken away until his child was born. But it's interesting, if you look down later in the chapter, when Zechariah's son is born and he gets his voice back, notice how Zechariah uses the very first words that he gets back when his voice comes back. He doesn't use his words to celebrate that his voice is back, nor to celebrate that he's even had a son. He uses his words to celebrate a different child other than his own, which is a pretty strange thing to do at a birthday party, uh, especially your own kid. I'm excited about this kid, right? It's, uh, he's excited about someone else's kid. Rather than saying, yay, I had a son, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. That horn of salvation in the house of David, that's Jesus. And the significance of Jesus' coming is this, as, as he tells us in verse 68, God himself has visited us and redeemed his people. That's what Christmas is all about, that God came to us in the person of Jesus in order to save us by becoming our great high priest who offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, he finishes or concludes this section in verse 16, there in chapter 4, where he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies? The throne of God on earth, located in the place that could only ever be entered by one man, one day a year, to present the blood of the sacrifice of atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the people corporately. The throne of grace mentioned here in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 refers to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And what it's saying is that because Jesus our great high priest has offered the ultimate sacrifice of himself. Now the way for us to come to God is open. We can come to him directly. We can come to him every time and any time. We need mercy and grace in our times of need. We can be cleansed, redeemed, and made pure because of what Jesus did for us. See, he, Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin for us so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange.
And because of what he did, the way for you to come to God and be in relationship with him is wide open. Jesus is our compassionate high priest. He is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. I love what it says about Jesus. It says that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Friends, if you are feeling hurt, tired, if you're feeling weary, just barely hanging on, know this, that he is gentle, he is patient, he is compassionate and kind. He became one of us to do for you what you could not do for yourself. So you can come to him today knowing that he understands you and he cares about you. He's shown his love for you in this by living his life for you and dying his death for you. And even now, he ever lives to make intercession for you, to support you and to see you through as you trust in him. The meaning of Christmas is that God loves you and he's done everything to bring you into a relationship with him and to see you through to heaven. Your part in this is to trust in him and what he's done for you and to take his hand and walk with him. The truest way to celebrate Christmas is by entering into that relationship which God came to earth to make possible for you. Don't miss the opportunity to do that this Christmas season. In Jesus, God became one of us in order to relate to us and to save us by becoming our great high priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.